Good afternoon. It is 2 p.m. Saturday, July the 18th, 2020 in, in the Midwest here in St. Louis. It is a hot day. It's 93 degrees. We're expecting a high of 95. You're listening to Altitude Adjustment, the podcast about people, politics, and professions. And today we've got a, I've got a really great show. I say we, um, but we, we have a really great show for you. We have a, a cast of people who have varied backgrounds, and we're, we're going to talk about a lot of different subjects. So that's coming up right now. Welcome, Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. So I want to thank everybody for joining this afternoon, and I want to thank my guests. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I was originally going to try to do that, and uh, it was probably going to take too long. So they can tell you more uh, better about themselves than I can. So, Angela, can we get you to start? Yeah, hi. My name is Angela Skirtu, and I am a nationally certified sex therapist through ASECT and a Missouri licensed marriage and family therapist. Who is next? Anybody remember? All right, let's do okay. Mike. Okay. Um, I am a serial entrepreneur. I'm a serial entrepreneur uh, since uh, 92 um, in the uh, creative design and web development business. Um, let's see here. Uh, I also have a health, fitness, and wellness uh, business. Um, I volunteer uh, in my spare time, if there is such a thing, uh, um, you know, in kids' sports and, you know, just making sure they're all well, uh, they're all well-rounded. Uh, park owner in uh, a heritage uh, festival that we do once a year uh, uh, with St. Louis World's Fair. And I am motivated uh, and inspired by social and political issues, uh, you know, that affect us in the U.S. and globally. Okay, Kim, can I get you to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Kim Ferguson, a licensed clinical social worker. I currently work for St. Louis County Department of Health providing individual support, therapy, group work, not groups yet, uh, but uh, couples therapy as well. He uh, Heather. Good afternoon, I'm Heather Stout. I'm a certified rehab counselor and I'm the accessibility and wellness coordinator at St. Louis University School of Law. And Michael. I'm Michael Hagmeyer, and I'm a Portland, Oregon native. I moved to St. Louis with Heather in 2013. Uh, we actually arrived July 16th of 2013. I work in the technology field. I'm also a musician and composer. And Warren. Hi, I'm Warren Harper, uh, born and raised in St. Louis. I'm a retired letter carrier with the post office. I really love jazz. I created the podcast City Jazz Sessions, which is on break right now. But uh, Leon and I are planning on getting back together with that. So. And joining us now, um, my brother Leonard. Uh, hey, good, good afternoon, everybody. <laughs> hello, Leonard. Okay, so he missed out on a few things, but he'll have to catch up during the, the show. Um, also, I wanted to mention that Angela... Uh, is a podcaster. She has a uh, podcast. You want to tell them about your podcast, Angela? Yeah, sure. I, I do the About Sex podcast at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. I also do, oh, I'm crazy. I do so much stuff. I have a YouTube channel as well. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. 
So I want to thank everyone for joining me this afternoon, and I really am looking forward to an exciting discussion. Um, we are not going to allow people to join the discussion uh, today, but you can uh, type questions into the chat text chat area, and I will try to incorporate that as best I can. So we just we talked earlier uh, where we wanted to start because there's so many things. We are we are for me it is an extremely interesting time, which is why I wanted to put this podcast together. And we have so many issues that we're trying to tackle in a in at one time that my my concern here is one that we're approaching it in the right way and two that we're going to achieve something. So I, let me start with my first question being uh, and I'm going to pose this to you, Angela, and give everyone a chance to answer. What do you think is the probability that we're going to effectively address the issues that we have before us and the potential for doing it right? <laughs> oh, goodness. It's a hard question because I I feel terrible, but I kind of don't have a lot of faith in our system right now. Um, I'm trying to get involved as best as possible, um, but like... I kind of feel like it's very corrupt and the more I learn, the more disappointed I am with the way the country's going. Um, I know that there's some movement that's happening in multiple ways, like with the black lives matter movement. And, you know, there's some traction that's being gained, but I'm, I'm definitely feeling a sense of, uh, I don't know, like disappointment and how the country's handling the pandemic disappointment and how the country is handling uh, police brutality and civil rights. Um, I'm starting to think more and more that our country is only set up for rich white males. And, and that's pretty hard to watch. Um, and I do know there's people out there that are trying. I do, and I see that, and I'm proud of all those people. But I, I just, I see so many systems that are just set up for failure for anyone anyone who kind of doesn't fit into that mold. Um, so that's where I'm at on <laughs> What do you all think? So I'm not, I'm going to put you on the spot there, Mike. What do you think? Do you think that, uh, how do you? I, I'm, I agree. I agree with a lot of, uh, you know, what she's saying. You know, there's always, you know, there always seems to be, uh, uh, you know, pendulum swings. Uh, but yeah, it, it really seems to be disheartening. Uh, just a general mindset, uh, you know, of people that are in line with the status quo. Uh, you know, there's a big fight going upwards. Uh, yeah, there are lots of distractions. You know, we have a pandemic going on. Uh, you know, the um, uh, the cracks in, I don't know, just, just the general, like, things that we are sold on in America just... It just isn't true, you know? And uh, it's things that people have been talking about for a long time. And I don't know, it just seems like uh, everyone is just in such a desperate situation that, you know, we just have to be offered like the, uh, you know, the tiniest thing, you know, just to feel, just to feel normal again. And I don't know, I just, it's, 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 it's just hard to see people on the wrong side of history time and time again. 
and then wonder why we are in the positions that we're in. So yeah, I'm really worried about it. Uh, you know, it does inspire me and motivate me. Uh, you know, to keep up the good fight. But man, just just talking to everyday people, you know, about everyday things. So Kim, like, so yeah. Kim, what 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 do you think uh, is our trajectory at solving these problems? Do you feel like um, you're positive that we're going to be able to address these in a reasonable time and be effective at achieving uh, solutions? As a therapist, I have to say, sometimes change is unwanted. Um, it's always happening slower than we would want. Um, and it, it takes, I guess, a short game and a long game. Um, I think what has upset us so is there's no national leadership or national voice pulling us together. Um, and so that is very unfortunate. Um, and so we have people like us and other people, politicians trying to have conversations, trying to garner more support, trying to move the conversation forward, uh, but it's just not happening as fast as we want. How about you, Heather? What do you think? I, I definitely feel similar to what um, the three of you have been talking about. It feels to me like we as a country have taken a number of steps backwards in terms, terms of moving some things forward. I feel like at the national level, there's just leadership that's desperately needed. Um, and that's trickling down to us here in Missouri in ways that really concern me. Um, even though we may here in St. Louis have at times voices that are trying to be progressive, if we have state voices that are saying something different, it's been hard. I really feel like with the leadership we've got right now, some of the really important um, progressive voices that had begun to get involved in um, making change and, and um helping us move forward, we're discouraged. And, and so I'm hopeful that over the next year, we may have an opportunity to bring in some people who can really bring back some of that important um, encouragement at the national level. So Michael, but for me, it's very hard. Yeah, just I've, because of the nature of the work that I'm doing, I also am very worried about healthcare right now. And I don't, yeah, that's kind of where so, I am. So Michael, what, what do you think uh, our prospects are of addressing these um, uh, issues in a, a timely and efficient manner? I, I would say we're in a very precarious time right now um, because on the one hand, on, on certainly on some state levels, we are seeing um, pretty dramatic attempts to address issues in Colorado. And uh, a good friend of mine was uh, involved in passing six laws in Oregon addressing police conduct. Um, and, and one of the laws that they pass is actually um, uh, 
a panel to look at what needs to happen going forward. And at the same time, one of the bills that was passed was uh, outlawing the use of tear gas unless a riot is declared. And, you know, one of the things that uh, my, my friend who was, was one of the sponsors of the bills was talking about is, you know, they're already looking at loopholes. So a peaceful demonstration is declared a riot and so they're they're and they and so they use tear gas and one of the things that's happened in the last couple of days in portland is um federal federal um federal marshals have have come in and they're they're kidnapping people off of the street and putting them into unmarked cars and um you know so so you know when i it's precarious because there there does seem to be both real movement on a legislative level at least on you know and this is the you know when when this movement started happening it's kind of not at the beginning of the legislative year so you know, a special session was actually called in Oregon. Okay, Mike, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to move us along so that we can get to yeah. our other issue. I don't want to interrupt you because okay. I, I I want the conversation to be you know spirited, um, uh -huh. but I want to make sure that we get to you know some of those things so that we can actually address some of those okay. issues that um, that we're gonna try to bring up that we think you know needs conversation to um, to be resolved. Is that fair? Yep. Okay, but also uh, I'm glad you brought up the um, the oh, the situation in Oregon. If you if you look down at the Chiron underneath, um, uh, that was one of the articles that I I looked at this morning, which surprised me that they are, you know, um, um, and and as far as I know, Trump sent those troops in there, and they're grabbing people, protesters off the streets, and not telling them why they're arresting them. And they're booking them and, and taking them through things um, and not telling them why. And I thought that was one of the primary things that we fought against in our policing system. And I'm surprised that they're just doing that. So I'm going to go on, uh, Warren. Uh, what do you think our prospects of addressing these, uh, all of the issues that we face as a society, and the potential for uh, a good outcome. Well, I think the prospects are are in the short term pretty slim. Right now, the country is so polarized and divided, and we have so many major issues that need to be addressed, and uh, it's going to take a long, long time. One of the big problems uh, Angela mentioned was the fact that. You know, we have this, the country has been run for so long by old white men. And the demographics are changing and people are getting sick and tired of them. And the way they're running the country, the way they're uh, running our lives, so to speak, in some senses. Uh, so things really have to change. This is why we have people protesting and rioting in the streets right now. It's, and it's not going to get better. 
So Leonard, what did you think? What do you think of uh, the potential for addressing these uh, issues that we are facing in a, um, a positive and constructive manner? Well, I look at every all the rioting stuffs going on, minus the criminal part of it, looting and burning and tearing up. I don't agree with that, but it's good to see that we have action where so many people are joining in. Now they have to turn that action over to voting and electorate. And it's not going to happen quick. It has to be a sustained effort. So the people that are just getting started now, especially, you vote, you in, you're going to look at about a nine to 10 year, at least, uh, obligation and commitment. And you got to keep going because the people that are in power aren't going to give it up easy. And they're going to change laws and change things for their benefit, like Pennsylvania did a few years ago, to change the voting law to restrict who can vote so Republicans can keep power. And voted for Mitt Romney when he was running against uh, Barack Obama. They got they. This is a start. Now you got to see it through. And I'm not sure that a lot of the people going to have a time to see it through. Like the civil rights people, they started in the 50s real hard. They had to go through all the 60s. And some things that happened to the early 70s. But they had to ride that, they had to ride that out. They had to ride it out. And uh, if these people ride it out, we got a chance. But it's not going to happen quick. It's not going to be a quick draw. Okay. So um, my thought is... <clears throat> We are at a, a really unique opportunity. We're at a, a unique time. And I've seen more movement in a short period of time over the last few months since January, actually. Um, but we've seen movement before. We've seen laws passed. And as Michael pointed out, they're already trying to roll back that. So there are, and, and Kim mentioned, people fight change that's just what they do they don't because they don't understand it or because it is uncomfortable they're going to push back against it and so i'm optimistic while being cautious i believe that um, change can come and as leonard mentioned it's going to take a sustained effort we can't take our eyes off of what we're trying to accomplish because the minute we relax, muscle memory will take us right back to where we were before. So we could squander this opportunity or we can put the pedal to the metal and make sure that we move forward. So our first uh, topic that we're gonna to try to cover today and my guess is it's going to be a, um, a barn burner. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give I'm going to give Angela the very first shot at it. And then after that, I'm not going to go in order. Whoever wants to respond. Um, so add a little spontaneity to it. Um, but at least uh, everybody keep your answers as close to a couple of minutes as possible so that we can make sure that we cover more than one topic. We're not going to find a solution today. And uh, I really just want to start a discussion and bring out some of the ideas so that we can see 
some of the different views about how these uh, issues are being perceived by different people. Fair enough? Fair enough. Fair enough. Excellent. So, Angela, if you could start us off on Black Lives Matter. I knew you were going to ask about this, and I've been like scanning my brain of just like all the things. There's so much that is, um, I'm just angry. I'll be honest with you all. So I have a lot of passion about this topic. Um, I'll start with the rhetoric, actually. Like, I can't believe how much racism is a part of our political rhetoric at a basic level. People have been given some sort of right and almost like they feel they feel like they have a right to say certain things. Like when I first think of Black Lives Matter, I think of the retorts that you hear, like all lives matter or blue lives matter or more black people kill black people. And I get, I just get so angry about it because these are all very, very racist ways of dismissing, of dismissing people who are hurting at a very core level. Like, you know, I have seen great little visuals of it where it's like somebody says breast cancer, breast cancer matters. And then somebody's like, well, testicular cancer matters too. You know, it's like, that's not the point. But in our political rhetoric, we have the ability, like people have the ability to dismiss people in that way. And it, it just breaks my heart. And all of them are one, ridiculous and dismissive, but two, some of them come from the wrong place. Like, you know, more black people kill black people. By the way, every race kills more of its own race because that's actually speaking about domestic violence that um, people, more, most, any like race on race crime is from people who are in domestic violence situations. And so when people use that, they're not even talking about the issue, they're diverting and and that's the part that bothers me the most is just this ability of people to, one, be overtly racist and to not feel racist, but, <laughs> like to feel like they're justified. But isn't, <laughs> isn't, isn't diverting from an issue. So we, we've got a society that does not like to address issues directly. That, that's just yeah. across the board. We, we didn't want to address uh, um, laws passed to, to for handicaps, uh, the Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to address it. Um, and so Black Lives Matter isn't going to be any different. It's not, it's not the, I don't think the issue itself, it's just that we have a problem in our society dealing directly with anything. I think you're right. And actually that that's kind of the key point is that as a country, instead of owning, owning our issues and realizing, wow, we have a problem. We need to do something about this. Instead, we divert, we pretend like it's not there. We put up smoke screens and that's part of what is disappointing everyone. I think in this situation is instead of just saying, yeah, like I had the, at the school district of Clayton, they actually, um, the head, he actually sent out a very beautiful ownership email of like, you know, we failed our students. And I've heard enough stories that we need to really address this issue. And I was like, that's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear from leadership. I think true leadership involves ownership, recognizing where you're wrong and the ability to grow because nobody's a perfect person. But if you have ownership and a willingness to grow, then we can grow as a country. But without that, we're fucked. <laughs> Anybody? The first like, I thought I would open it up to the crowd. No, go ahead. <laughs> I want to say, 
you you have to lead people kind of along the process. First, we were looking, somebody uh, alluded to the good old uh, white boys club. So first we had to look at male power. Then we had to look at white privilege and people, some are coming more uh, willingly to the conclusion that our country is built on institutional racism. And people do miss the point when you say Black Lives Matter and they say all lives matter, they don't understand the concept of equity and leveling the playing field and the rate at which African-American males and women don't survive routine police stops and other people do. Or sometimes it's very uh, discouraging when there's some sort of mass incident in the news and there's a shooter and he's killed all these people and he comes out in handcuffs and he's white, he's not black. But somebody waving a knife or somebody with a counterfeit $20 bill or a taillight out um, ends up dead. And, and so until we're willing to look at what's going on, until we're willing to um, not place blame, but look at how can we move forward? How can we form energy? How can we as a group do something about this? We can spend time talking about blame and whose fault it is, but that doesn't move us forward. The conversation now is what moves us forward? We're here. How do we get out of the situation we're in? And until people are willing to own up to the idea that equity needs to be applied fairly, then I think we're stuck. Well, I, I think it's kind of unfortunate that, well, I, I totally agree with you. I think one of the main catches is that, uh, you know, like there are a lot of perks about living in the United States, okay? But at the same time, uh, there are people who love those perks for themselves, but they don't want others to get it. So I see, I come across people who will cut off their nose despite their face all the time. And they don't realize that, you know, that when it comes to equity, they feel threatened by someone else you know, having the same opportunities as them, you know, they don't want to acknowledge it, you know, there's all these things that have to do with accountability, but yet they don't want to recognize all the problems in the, well, they don't want to recognize everyone's problems, they only want to recognize their own problems, and I think that's one of the things that's stopping us from having progress, you know, it's like not everyone's willing to just say, hey, okay, these are all the crazy things that have happened, these people have been getting shafted, you know, for generations, you know, these people have also gotten shafted, you know, how do we fix it all, you know, but there are a lot of greedy, selfish people trying to hold on to their station and positions in life that just will not acknowledge, you know, the pain and suffering of others. And like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like I was reading something, uh, you know, that had to do, uh, you know, with half of, uh, half of the accounts uh, that have to do, um, you know, with uh, with masking up and stuff like that um, in regards to the pandemic, you know, they're all bots, you know, and we're able to be defeated by the fact that we will not talk about things. You know, we won't acknowledge someone else's pain and, you know, and we just want what's ours instead of, you know, like looking out for each other. So I completely agree. It's just unfortunate we all aren't on the same page of, you know, who, 
uh, who deserves equity? You know, because it's just some folks who's like, well, no, I, I feel threatened about you having a chance, you know, and that goes back to the racism part. So I completely agree. I completely well, agree. Well, it's just like anything else. Uh, the people that are in power, right. it's profitable for them mm-hmm. not to feel anyone else's pain. It's right. profitable right. for them to make sure that other people don't have the same equity they do. It's right. profitable for somebody in some kind of way that the, uh, around the time that George Floyd got killed by that police officer, mm-hmm. they showed the guy up in the Northeast that killed two people and kidnapped a woman. He's sitting by he's sitting by the police car on the ground in handcuffs with a policeman giving him water. Right. Or the little boy who got mad because his life was a failure in South Carolina. He trespasses on another people's property, that church, and he shoots a bunch of black people because his life is a failure. And the police come upon him, and it, it was just a story to see. That they come upon him sitting in the car, you see them putting their weapons in their holsters. And then on the way to the show, they take him and buy him Burger King hamburgers and french fries. Mm-hmm. So that's what is here. And, you know, and it needs to be more than talk. There's been talk about this for decades, at least the 50s. Now, let's take some action. And one of the most important things you can do is your election. And it starts locally. Mm -hmm. Right. And it goes up. But it starts with who's on your city council or your board of office. Mm -hmm. Who is your mayor? Like St. Louis, you had a mayor that printed out in public all the names and addresses of people that wanted police uh, that one of the police officers wanted change in the police department. She did that on purpose. Now she's applying about it. And then you get other people, like one of the guys on Channel 9 that said, oh, when you send a letter to the mayor, that's public property. It's okay to do that. So, you know, to invite retribution when you're trying to take advantage of your constitutional right. right. Peacefully protest whatever's going on. And that's all they did. Right. Yeah. So, 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 so one of the things that um, I think about is, uh, so I've, I've seen a lot about EQ. I don't know if you've seen articles where they talk about emotional quotient or whatever. And what it is, is about people's ability to reflect on themselves and uh, escalate they're um, become adults emotionally. So one of the things that I mentioned was, is that we as a society don't like to deal with issues directly. And because we're not, we don't choose to deal with issues directly, we don't do well at handling um, adversity because we don't tend to act as a, as a as a society as adults if we a lot of the reaction to um a lot of the reaction to adversity um black lives matter people getting killed uh um pedophilia is if we ignore it 
If we don't deal with it, it'll go away. It'll eventually not be in the head the headlines anymore, and then we won't have to deal with it. And that seems to be the method by which we try to problem solve. Right. Yeah, Leon. Just like, oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, it seems like a lot of what we're dealing with, you know, specifically with with Black Lives Matter and policing and the treatment of African Americans in society as a whole, because it seems like all those things are intertwined. But it seems like a lot of the struggle is between those who refuse to act like adults and take responsibility for how our society behaves versus those who say, hey, we've been we've been acting like bad children for way too long and we need to stand up and do what's right. I don't want to add to this. Um, emotional intelligence, uh, emotional intelligence at a core level is your ability to see how you impact others, right? And so for people to truly um, work on their prejudice. So first you have to be able to say, I am a person who has prejudices and biases. I am not perfect. I have the capability of harming others. And at any level, uh, I work with lots of couples and actually infidelity is a really common topic in my practice. And the people who fare best are people with high emotional intelligence, people who can say, I'm capable of causing this harm and I'm going to do everything I can to become a better person and grow. And so when we talk about institutional racism, part of our job is to recognize, whoa, how am I a part of this system? How do I play a role? Like in the medical community, for example, more black women die in birth and childbirth than, uh, than white, white women. And part of it is because there is this bias that black women can handle pain and black people can handle pain more than white people. It's an unintentional bias, but it's a reality. And as a result, they're given pain medication less than, than white women. And as a result, there are more deaths. That's not one of the, that's not the only thing, but it's an example. And like for people to truly have emotional intelligence, they have to look and see, wow, how could I potentially be doing that? How could I even have a small bias? Like, and it's not a small bias because obviously it's a big bias, but it's an example of like, how could I even personally have this ability to do this? And if we don't have that ownership capability and the ability to self-reflect, there is no emotional intelligence. And we are having a severe emotional intelligence deficit in this country. Hey, hey Angela, uh, I've got a question. So uh, I, I deal with people like that all the time who lack emotional intelligence. Uh, um, and, you know, I'm, I would like to think I'm pretty patient, you know, when it comes to engaging with, uh, uh, you know, with various sorts of people, but what's like the best way to, to even, uh, you know, interact with people that obviously lack emotional intelligence, you know, I just need some well, advice. <laughs> sure. So <laughs> the hardest thing is trying to be as calm as possible when you talk to somebody who struggles with emotional mm -hmm. intelligence to assume they don't mean to do it. Like one tactic, tactic I use is when somebody says something either racist or bigoted or even just sexist, I'll say, I think you don't mean to do this. You don't mean to come across this way, but here's how it sounds. Is that what you meant? And I've noticed the giving the benefit of the doubt, but then calling people out on their bullshit 
really is a great right. tactic, but it's not 100% because some people just cannot face that they could possibly be racist or intolerant in any way. It's not me. I would never. And the people who say I would never, always, always. I love <laughs> you. Know. Did you have something, Heather? Heather? Well, I would have lots of things. Yeah. So, so. What I was going to say was uh, going back to, I guess her name is Angie. It's not so much that they won't face, they will not face. They know, I believe, and just based on my experience, they know who they are and they know what they are. Mm -hmm. But now, when if somebody calls my, oh no, that's not me, but. Mm -hmm. Right. Or one of the code words for me, when I hear a person in one race, but I got friends of this other race. And why you feel that you have to justify that? Your friend is your friend. No matter what race you are, no matter what race they are. If they're friends, they have to be friends. Like, I don't go say my white friend. I don't go say my Spanish friend or my Chinese friend. This is my friend. If they happen to be Hispanic, they happen to be Chinese, they happen to be whatever. But that's what is going on now. It, it, it started out with Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter, they're the group that's keeping this issue up. They're trying to fix change by getting the issue and getting to politicians. But what's so good about this movie is not just Black people out there. There's Caucasian people out there. I've seen Asians out there. I've seen Hispanics out there. Because a lot of people that aren't WASP, as we're called historically, the WASP term, they're getting discriminated against some kind of way. And they're tired of it. Let my abilities determine what I do and not my skin color. Leonard, I want to push back. Features. I want to push back just a little bit, Leonard. There are people who know what they're doing and they continue to do it. But then there are other people out there who don't have a clue. And, it's true. and they need to be, and she said, when she said, this is how it sounds. Or sometimes when I'm doing group work, I use uh, oops and ouch. So that somebody, when somebody says something, somebody can say, ouch, meaning what you said affected me a certain way. So there are people who need to be introduced to those concepts like uh, institutional racism, because we would even say African-Americans who buy things from racist companies are actually participating in institutional racism. So we have to look at the systems and see if they're meant to keep people in a certain place. And if they are, and if it's not equal across the board, it's institutional racism. I mean, the definition has to be just that clear. And then we have to mm -hmm. move forward. But it takes some security about who I am as a person to examine myself and to see the ways in which I'm doing harm to other people. But we know that hurt people hurt other people. So That's we true. have so many issues with poverty and other things that are happening that we don't always have what we need to have the conversations. Well, I, I, I'd I like- as a man who studied economics before, because of our biases, 
that we practice. America loses four to eight percent every year on gross national product strictly because of biases, because we're judging people based on their skin color or ethnicity rather than their ability. I, I'm glad you so brought that up. Productivity in the world. I'm glad you brought that up. So the people that foment the oppressive system, that 4% um, doesn't matter to them because that 4% right. um, is not, not coming directly out of their pocket. And so whatever comes into the economy, they're going to get theirs. So what's their incentive um, to change the way things are done so that we don't have hashtag this, hashtag that? Because, because they don't, right, they don't have, they're not, they're not invested. They're not invested in the society as a whole. So whereas you and I uh, and everyone on the panel is not independently wealthy enough to live in a gated community, to fly private airline, to, you know, um, not have to take Uber and share a car ride with someone else. Um, so for us, we are, we are connected with everything that happens in our society because we know someone or connected with someone that is impacted by everything. So if we go through our family, uh, families and friends, we'll find someone that fits into every group or every hashtag. But if you are wealthy, the, the, the chance of you intermingling or connecting with someone who, who fits into those hashtags becomes remote. So, so we can't look to corporations and people who have money to affect change. It's going to require those people who are connected to those hashtag movements to do something about it. You're, you're exactly right. But one recent example that I can think of is like the... American Indians um, have fought for years to not be used as logos for sports teams. And finally, some other corporate people got the feeling that way. And it's caused the Washington Redskins now to do it. But it took, it took other rich people to say, like FedEx, for example, Coca-Cola, we're pulling out of advertising. And so Daniel Snyder's losing big money because he was one of those obstinate people for the years he owned the Washington Redskins. Now we'll never change. But all the players that they've interviewed since then say, hey, we'll embrace the new change. Give me the New Jersey. I'll throw away, I'll, I'll burn or throw away all my old Redskins stuff because, you know, having them and having a a uh, racist name attached to them, a racist slur. For a lot of them, being called a redskin is just like for African-Americans being called a nigga. So, you know, that he's changing that now, and some other teams are looking at the change, are starting to follow mm -hmm. over the last 20-some years. Just like, uh, Leon, I know you 
as well as myself and Kim, went to U City High School. It used to be called the Indian. Right. Well, they, they did some changes a few years ago. Now it's the U City Lions. So there are many ways to put pressure on folks. Now, what we at the bottom got to do, I think we need to go and be showing up at, at least 75 to 90% of the folks instead of 20%. Right. And people in power got to know, oh, hey, if I don't do what they say, they can turn that 90% against me, and I'm going to lose office. So mm -hmm. I tell you, a politician, their number one concern is maintaining their office. You know, I just want to jump in here. Um, the bottom line is that racism is profitable. I mean, yeah. we're talking about this, like, go follow the money, right? Follow the money. So like this country was built from slavery and now it's just transitioned to prison systems where we're getting, we, we profit off of people in minority communities. And that's one of the biggest problems is that we, one, we need to call it out, call it out for what it is and point it out because in, until that is addressed very directly, then the people who have money are not gonna do anything about it. And the worst part of that is that, like to really make this change, we, I hate to say it, but we need white males in this process. We need white males that are rich to come alongside us in this movement and say, no, this is wrong, this is not okay, because that's what they have, white privilege. They have the money, they have power. And so we also need ownership from white males that are rich to under, like there needs to be an ownership of both white privilege and the fact that we profit off of racism for any real impactful change to occur. Yeah. That's, I'm glad you brought that up. So, so, so the question I have for you is, um, when there's, when there's, so for, for the white males, there is no rational, I can say rational, there is no reason for them to support Black Lives Matter movement or equality, because as you said, they're profiting off a system of racism. They maintain that system of racism by selling to every white person who's below their economic standing, the idea that if you let these black people have equality, they're gonna push you down and you're never going to be rich like me. So how do you sell white men on the idea of giving up their station in life, their ability to walk into a store and, and, and every clerk drop what they're doing to attend to their needs for advertisers to create advertising specifically for them. So the system is, everything is built, designed, and operates to their advantage. How do you get someone to say, you know what? I'm tired of having uh, the, the supreme position in life. And though I know it's hurting other people, you know, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna stop doing it because I want those people to have what I have, which means I probably won't have it anymore. 
are certainly less and sometimes they're unwilling to have less but at the convergence that we find ourselves in now there's political correctness there's energy being brought to bear and people in various stations of life are questioning the status quo and so that's why this is an exciting time because we're having conversations about what needs to change. And so we have to continue the conversation. The conversation has to be, I wanted to say tempered or realistic. It has to be, it has to make sense uh, to a, a group of people that are in the position of saying yes or no. So, we have to keep having the conversation. We have to keep our hand on the pulse. We have to keep it in front of people's faces so that they don't just fall back into the status quo again. We have to still keep calling for change. Yeah. Yeah, we have to keep the pressure on them. And people yeah. have to come together and support causes yeah. under organizations like Black Lives Matter and the like. But, you know, when people, when the masses come together in a unified voice, uh, they're more likely to get re results. Uh, and money talks. When those advertisers uh, yes. backed away from um, the football team, he changed mm -hmm. that quick. When before, mm -hmm. at the beginning, he said, I will never change. Now look. Somebody mm -hmm. uh, made a statement, um, a Native American posted on Twitter something that was interesting. They said, red face is black face. So think about that. They're mm -hmm. comparing the, the two, you know, and that's what that thing is uh, to them when they use those, um, make those logos and mascots from their culture without their permission, you know, without conceding to who they are or respecting them. It's like blackface. Warren, I'm, I've been in a conference this last week and the um, there was a lawyer who presented in one of the last sessions and she pointed out to all of us who work in disability that this is the moment that we need to care about Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter will impact disability lives. And so we need to all come together and work on this issue because it is going to impact disability. There is so much fear right now in individuals who care deeply about very important, very critical causes that it seems like some people are unable to see that if I put that energy, fuel that into this cause, it is gonna impact this cause I care very deeply about as well. And if we join together, I feel like that's very hard right now. People are afraid and are holding on to this tiny little piece of what they still may have and, and not seeing that there's this, this possibility out there if we come together and work on one issue together that it will, it will impact your issue too. Intersectionality. What's that? That's what we're talking about. Uh, intersectionality. Uh, and it seems like there's a lot of that is, is happening. And, you know, I, I, I definitely have seen uh, some movement from uh, 
people who who hadn't hadn't previously been very sympathetic to uh, issues around black people that are at least showing uh, some glimpses of movement that I hadn't seen before. Um, I, I also think that there's uh, among people that are uh, a generation or two younger than most of the people on this on this panel that I I think I I think they're starting at a place of of somewhat more uh, intersectionality mindset of of you know my issue is different than than yours but it's connected um, and so I will support you with the understanding that you'll support support me and. You know, maybe maybe my issue isn't on the front burner right now, but it will be. It will be down the road, and and one of the things that that I think about sometimes is just about everybody has you know even even some rich white men have things that the way they're different from the norm has made their life more difficult. It hasn't. You know, for a lot of them, maybe ha hasn't made their life dangerous, and 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 I think I think if people can understand that, yes, some of the ways that you're different has made life more dangerous for other people, it has made life dangerous. And what we need to do is is first work on reducing. You know, being different shouldn't be dangerous. We need to, you know, that needs to be first in line, and then we can work towards. And being different shouldn't mean more difficult either. Mm -hmm. So, just to add to that, I think, um, you know, there are. I, if you, while I'm very angry, as you all can probably hear in my voice every time I'm talking, the reality is, real change comes from conversations like this, where we're listening to each other and we're trying to understand each other. I'm even personally trying to challenge myself to have more of those conversations. And when I do understand people who think differently from me, what I'm finding is that intersectionality you mentioned, which is that actually there are similar things we we want. Like if you think of police brutality, police brutality affects everyone. It affects anyone who gets pulled over. It is disproportionately affecting the black population but it does affect white people, white males, if they get pulled over and are aggressively addressed and qualified immunity means they don't even get to be tried. Like, so these things are inequalities for all. And I think we have to get away from the mindset that equal rights or civil rights is somehow taking away from yeah. whites. Like in some way, it's not, it, it's not taking away. Like it, it's not even that inconvenient. Like I think people see it in this strange way, like this mm -hmm. is going to take my job or whatever, you know? And it's like, it doesn't, it just makes it possible for other people to grow and have opportunity as well. But giving more opportunity doesn't suddenly take away your opportunities. That it's like a crazy mindset. Mm -hmm. So, so Michael, uh, you, t you talked about intersectionality. And so the thing that came to my mind was, we're looking at issues as your issue, his issue, her issue, my issue. So we still haven't identified we are Americans. 
Right. And every issue is my issue. Mm-hmm. When, when the, when the um, disability, disabled population is treated incorrectly, while I may not be disabled, that's my cousin, that's my neighbor, that's my brother, that's my future. I could get hurt. Something could happen mm-hmm. to me. And I could become disabled. Then I'm that person. And then, then if I choose to wait until that time to um, fight for the issue, it, it's too late because now I'm hampered because I'm now in a part of a smaller group that doesn't have right. the clout to move the discussion forward. So my thought is we need to embrace that all of these issues are our issues they're american issues mm-hmm. and we need and we should stop seeing ourselves as isolated on a particular team wearing a particular jersey and making sure that if i have a platform and um and and and, and i have someone who is disabled and I'm not disabled to make sure that I bring that person along and fight for their issue because it is important to cleanse our society of this kind of individual think. Now, okay, so 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 here's so here's where the problem comes and we all face this and we get frustrated uh, um, uh, we get frustrated by it. Because there are people who are disingenuous will use that same mindset to then respond with the all whatever issues matter. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's the problem that, you know what I'm saying? We eventually, well, I, I think it's, all right, you know, so one of my tactics or methods in dealing with people is pointing out when people do bullshit like that. Okay, because yeah, you know, we do have to see that, you know, one person's issue is also my issue. But there are those bad actors who will be like, oh, well, you know, don't single it out as yours. You know, all lives matter. So I still think that, you know, that, you know, there are fluid ways to go back and forth, you know, and see, you know, one issue as a part of a bigger issue. But we got to point out those people who use that as a means of deflection and not as a means of problem solving because i come across this shit every single day <laughs> like what what i heard leon saying though was <laughs> that we should be invested in making mm-hmm. sure anybody who is marginalized right. is invited to the table and into the conversation mm-hmm. and okay. that that's a little different than when you know that somebody's being disingenuous and deflecting. But I think it's, um, well, let me just say that. So I was doing diversity and cultural diversity training for BJC and St. Louis Children's Hospital. And in one of the things we were doing, um, I was so busy seeing myself, this was a training for the trainers as a targeted individual as African-American I miss the fact that I'm not targeted when it comes to my uh, heterosexuality or some other, my education. And so it's like helping people see the ways in which they can be allies 
simply because of the privilege that they have. And so for me as an African-American female, that was stretching me because if I'm looking at myself through the, the racial lens, then I was missing all the ways in which I'm privileged. And so in those other conversations, I could lend my privilege to the conversation to move the conversation along. So I think that what Leon is saying is valid and we do need to watch for, Mike, we do need to watch for those uh, players that aren't uh, operating from a good place. Right. I think right. it's both, it's not uh, mutually exclusive. Right, right. And, and, and so, you know, I think the, you know, the main thing is that, you know, it goes back to that emotional intelligence part that Angela was talking about. You know, some people look at things in ways, you know, and even have a, you know, there, there, there's a, a, there's a level of self-deprecation and not necessarily making yourself like the main focus in order to, to help people overall. But then there's those folks who just, it still comes back to them. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they want to, uh, yeah, I, I don't even know where to begin when it comes to stuff like that, because, you know, that's, that's where my patience leaves. But yeah, but to be able to point out right away who is a problem and let them know, hey, I think you're a problem in thinking a particular way. How are we going to solve this? So Angie would probably agree with me on this. When I had to look at some of the responses people have to things, I wanted to maybe think that they were very narcissistic and they were only thinking about themselves. But then when I looked at it through a trauma lens, I saw they were having a trauma response. So that when something happened, their first response was, how's this gonna impact me? And so helping people, again, work through their trauma, work through their emotional IQ and, uh, and help them understand things from a different manner. But sometimes a trauma-informed, not, um, a trauma-informed lens is saying what happened to you as opposed to what's wrong with you. So I think we have to acknowledge, and one of the things we said we wanted to bring in was mental health. We have to understand where people, where their jumping off point is. And some people are just unhealthy. They don't have that emotional quotient and they're unable to see. Sometimes their inability to see is based on a trauma response as opposed to narcissism. So we have to kind of gauge and give some people the benefit of the doubt. We know that there are bad actors out there, but it goes back. I think um, Angie might've alluded to uh, <laughs> not automatically assuming malintent when something happens, mm -hmm. giving people the benefit of the doubt because if I if somebody says something to me and I just go off and say, oh, you're a race, da da da, as opposed to having a conversation about how that how I heard that through my lens, and you may not have intended it to sound like that, but this is how people may hear it. That gives them the uh, opportunity to do better. Some people like to think if people know, they will do better. Some will, some won't, mm -hmm. but we can't throw it all out. We've still got to put the work in to bring more allies aboard and to keep moving the conversation forward. You know, I want to jump in since you called me out. I mean, come on. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, I am, I, I am so privileged that I get to have conversations behind closed doors with people. And what I have found is more people care than don't care. They do want to know, but they like 
what's been kind of crazy to me is how many white people I've spoken to who really were just not aware. Like, and they'll quietly talk to me because they trust me. And they'll say, what is, why is, why are black people so angry? And I'm, I'm honestly shocked, but the reality is quite a few people have been living in bubbles. They're not trying to cause harm. I, I can't legally put a percentage on it, but I kind of believe around 80% of people have good intent, want to be good to their partners or their neighbors and friends, don't want to see harm happening to the black community, but really have just not seen it. And so what I love is in these conversations, like they'll say, what? why are they so angry? And I get this opportunity to educate. And that opportunity comes from a willingness to one, see people as somewhere in there, there, there is a good person. I, you know, I've called out rich white men a lot and I'm sorry, rich white men who are listening because I know there are some of you who do care. But the reality is most of the people I've talked to in my circle do give a shit. Most of them just haven't seen it. They haven't become aware. And what's amazing about where the movement is now is now more people are seeing it. It's like, I think the death of George Floyd, just like it, it created a visual for the world to see what's happening. And most people are seeing it now. And I am just so grateful. I'm not grateful for what happened. Please don't mishear me here. That was horrible. It was horrible what happened, but grateful that it was caught on camera so that we can finally start dealing with this in a direct way. And we are getting movement. There are more white people involved in this moving in movement and white males. And there are people kind of asking because they don't want to anger their friends around them, but they want to know so they can be a part of it. And I think if we can see the people around us as mostly good who give a shit, then we can have more of these conversations and really make movement. I, I think that George Floyd video uh, created a profound change because it was not an officer responding in a moment. It was an officer callously kneeling on someone's neck for over eight minutes, somebody who's pleading. And, you know, I think... He, you know, even even damning videos of shootings, I think people can can sort of still do some rationalizations of that it was in the moment. But when it's when it goes on for over eight minutes, I think I think it, I think a lot of people have their eyes. You know, they. It, it it shook them up and I in a way that you know I think everybody on this panel has has known for a long time that there's been a big problem but I think that the video of George Floyd made it harder for people to ignore right. I, I think if you're a naive individual watching that video you would have a hard time recognizing that somehow that was an officer carrying out their duty to serve and protect, but rather a malicious act. And so it, it did seem to spark some, some level of compassion, which I feel like is desperately missing right now from the top down. Um, but yeah, that video, as sad as, as it was that it had to take 
a video to demonstrate that to us. It spoke very differently than, you know, I, I just a, a, an individual violent act that was seconds. I still have some, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that there's, you know, there's finally a movement, you know, that hopefully doesn't slow down. There's still a major part of me that's very angry. It's like, we've been talking about this for generations. So why did it yeah. take, you know, you know, why did it take other, other white people or other people from other nationalities finally getting in for you to finally see and acknowledge what we've been talking about for so long, you know? So I still have to deal with that anger. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it, yeah, it, it really makes me just kind of want to scream sometimes. I'm like, shit, mm -hmm. forever. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Good. I was not new. Michael, yeah. yesterday, that the, um, in the same conference that I was a part of um, for the next week, that it was brought up that the Black Panthers were heavily involved in even allowing the disability rights movement to exist because they mm -hmm. brought... And, and yet the Black Panthers were smeared so successfully yet they uh -huh. cared enough to bring food to people. And so that, that the, our inability to acknowledge goes way back to the oh, yeah. part of the civil rights movement. Well, it was just, it's just interesting you mentioned the Black Panthers. Like you said, they have feeding programs <clears throat> that are leaders, our political government leaders didn't take care of the poor children in their neighborhood. They had daycare programs. And what they started, it wasn't about fighting the government. They started in Oakland watching the police officers that were doing the brutality. The police got uncomfortable with them because they were being watched. They were starting to be held uncomfortable. And they were men sometimes that carry guns and say, okay, you bring this to me, I'm gonna bring it back to you. And that's where that's where that's where it all started. They they were watching the police to hold the police accountable with mistreating folks based on color, treat everybody the same. As a policeman, you you bring the people into justice, like George Floyd. In America, assuming he was using a $20 bill, it is not a crime listed as a death sentence. And if it is, that's supposed to be given by a judge in a courtroom, not mm -hmm. a couple of cops on the street. And when the man tell you, I can't breathe, you got to change something. Mm -hmm. Now, what Oregon mm -hmm. did, and some areas trying to do, they're outlawing the chokeholds. And like, mm -hmm. like uh, Mike said earlier, in Oregon, the police union and stuff was trying to fight that. Uh, one of the things you gotta, unlaw, you gotta outlaw all this no knock warrant stuff because in Louisville they killed a paramedic and then they tried to bring charges against her, boy, against her boyfriend because she shot one of the officers. Well, you did a no knock warrant and then you hit the wrong house. Okay. And the person and then, and why are they not? I yeah. think they just got fired. Why are they not having charges brought against? A Go ahead. Question. Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> Michael. Yeah. The, so the the killing of Breonna Taylor. Um, not only did they get the wrong house, 
but the person named in the warrant that they were supposed to be looking for was already in custody. Already the person they were looking for was already in custody. Already in custody. Yeah. So, so Michael. So, so that's the first time I'm hearing that. One. So, so Mike. No, no, in the first place. Mike brought up a, an issue, uh, a real significant issue, um, that that Kim touched on earlier, is that um, people who experience trauma, people that have been hurt, tend to hurt. And mm -hmm. Mike brought up how frustrated black people are with white people just now asking the question or making statements or getting involved in the situation. So there's already a lot of significant trauma in the black community. And I don't care what economic level you are at, you still feel that trauma because you have been connected in some way with, the, with someone who has it. I'm going to say there is no black person over the age of 18 that has not had a negative relationship with a police officer at some point. So this trauma is continued, it's not old trauma. This is not just from civil rights, uh, civil uh, slavery days. This is new trauma. This is ongoing trauma. And so now we're trying to solve a problem with not, without addressing the trauma, without addressing the pain. And I'm afraid that, um, that any solution that does not include that is going to be incomplete and insufficient. Well, that's definitely an uphill battle because there are lots of people who will not acknowledge any sort of pain, wrongdoing, issue, problem, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm in a couple of Facebook uh, kind of threads and posts and discussions right now where there are just people who will just willfully ignore, like, you know, the context of what's going on today and still, uh, you know, adhere to a narrative of, well, if you do everything right, you have nothing to worry about with the police. You know, but oh they won't acknowledge the fact that, you know, if some black ass gets out of a car just from being pulled over, there's a good chance I might get my ass killed. You know, like, why yeah. won't you acknowledge that? Why, why do you want to stick to this moral, you know, you know, and political posturing of like, yeah, you know, just do what you're supposed to do and everything will be all right. No, what evidence have you seen, you know, that supports that that's going to work? <laughs> you know, I can take my phone, you know, out of my pocket, you know, for some, you know, officer or someone thinking it's a gun. You know, I got to get a pink telephone case, you know, you know, just to make sure that someone doesn't think I'm going to shoot them for whatever reason. Like, you know, you know, and me personally, you know, and anecdotally, I've never touched a gun in my life. But, you know, if something happens, we all know that, you know, they're going to look back and see that, you know, you know, I got a bad grade in shop class or some shit like that. You know, saying so just just just, um, uh, just to frame me. You know, you know, and cover up some kind of BS. So anyway, you know, my whole point is, is like, no. You know, why can't you acknowledge that there's shit going on, and we need to change it so that we can apply those universal rules of, you know, you know, you know, just staying out of trouble. And you know, and even if trouble comes your way, you know, why can't I get drunk? 
you know, and make a mistake or something like that and live to tell about it, you know, versus versus my white counterpart, you know, who can get drunk, you know, jump on top of a car and steal a taser and all that kind of stuff, you know, and then have a funny story to tell the family, you know. So yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of frustration on my part. I, I could go on and on about all these uh, you know, examples. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, but Mike, what you? I'm sorry. You know, you. I, I was just gonna say that uh, in that uh, situation with the taser, some mm-hmm. commentator pointed out that the taser was a non-lethal weapon in the right. hands of the police, but right. all of a sudden, in the hands right. of a black man, we got to shoot with deadly force. Right, right, right. So right. again, we have that that despair, that that difference, that inability right. to consistently apply and look at things when it comes to the African-American community. Right, right. Well, yeah. they, choose, they choose to look at you like that. And um, when you talk about Taser, I think of the case in South Carolina, where the 50-year-old man, so this was five years ago, so he's the same age as me. At the time, I'm 50. He's running from a police officer. And the police body cam showed when he pulled a man over, the man got out and started running. And this officer chased him and shot him down in cold blood. Shot him from the back. Then he threw his taser on the officer. reason why we knew this, because a guy who was up there visiting relatives caught on his phone camera the chase. And the first thing that the mayor and some other public officials were saying, oh, the officer feared for his life. That's why he had to shoot and he took the officer's taser and it was deadly for, you know, and the guy showed the fat, the, the man who got killed and showed the fact he gave his tape to the family lawyer and the family lawyer came out and they arrested the officer and the officer's mother said, oh, he's a good boy. And I remember thinking good boys don't run around and gun people down and then throw tasers on them on the dead body to justify why he did it. So, you know, I'm just looking, I was, Kim, when you mentioned the tape, that just made me think, in one hand, it's not a deadly weapon. On the other hand, if the black man shoot, now we gotta, now we gotta kill you because you have a deadly weapon. Right. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap it up at this point unless, unless someone else has something that they absolutely wanna get in on this session. Uh, I want to thank everybody for, for sitting through the, the hour and 15 minutes with me. Um, I am going to invite each and every last one of you back. Right now, I'm going to, as I said, I'm going to close the show. I'm going to ask everybody to hang on um, and don't hang up just yet. And for, the, for those of you, we will, I will be back. Uh, Leonard and uh, Warren and I will be back uh, next week. And um, I hope you enjoyed the show. That concludes this episode. And thank you for listening. This podcast is designed for live listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com slash home for details about how to join the conversation. The video version of Altitude Adjustment is available on YouTube. Search for Lions Den STL. And the audio podcast is available on Stitcher.com, Anchor.fm, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Look for Altitude Adjustment where you get your podcast and consider making a contribution. 
by visiting anchor.fm slash altitude dash adjustment two. Remember, the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes because it matters. As always, be cool, be calm, and above all, be careful. Look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.